Um, and then you put this methane into actual pipelines as a way to justify having a mix with gas and green renewable gas. It's very problematic. Getting your head wrapped around gas has been really problematic. The carbon capture and storage is just incredibly problematic, and especially looking at the countries where negotiations are happening right now. They're oil companies, they're oil states, and so that's problematic. And you shouldn't just hide behind a vague word. They say that problematic is just a smokescreen that people throw up so they don't actually have to back up what they're saying. I say, hold on. Problematic, problematic, problematic. Last week, Rob did a video on U of R professor, Dr. Mary Finley Brook. And it was an interesting video because you really get to see Hannah Arendt's banality of evil in real time. You see, Arendt believed it wasn't monsters or sociopaths that did all the evils in the world, but normal, unassuming people. A bold claim, I know. But if you stick with me, I'll show you why I think this is the case and also show why I think Finley Brook is a liability for the University of Richmond. I know some will say I'm a conspiracy theorist or a climate change denier because I think in 2030, I'll still be going to concerts at the Norva in Norfolk, Virginia, and that the eastern seaboard of Virginia won't be underwater. The climate refugees, which will definitely happen. And when I think about Hampton Roads and Virginia Beach area, that's our largest population zone that's going to go underwater first. Look, they're, they're not always right, but I wish they would stop predicting uh, environmental repercussions because they've done it a lot and it hasn't happened. Mm -hmm. Like in 2003, James Hansen, the NASA guy, was like, if we don't completely reverse what we're doing in 10 years, it's too late. Which will definitely happen. But our good friend Finley Brook believes in a really gross and nasty conspiracy theory. Um, my, my degree, and I had really been looking at human rights and indigenous rights in, in Central America, but the brother of Ken Sarawiwa, if you know the Ogani Nine, uh, who were assassinated by their government, really in defense of corruption and, and shell, uh, and, the, and it really hasn't been fully resolved to this day what has happened in Nigeria. Um, but I heard um, Ken Sarawiwa's brother speak at the Vermont Law School and that's when I started attending much more to fossil fuels. Let me explain that. Back in the 90s, Nigeria was ruled by Sani Abaka, who was a military dictator that had a sham trial that allowed him to kill nine of his critics, known today as the Ogani Nine. Now, Finley Brook thinks the Royal Dutch Shell Oil Corporation told the Nigerian military to kill the Ogani Nine because the leader of the Ogani Nine, Ken Sarawiwa, had been very critical of them. Activists have hounded Shell for years and kept bringing lawsuits after lawsuit after lawsuit against them in regards to Nigeria and their involvement with the subsidiary SPDC. So in 2009, Shell agreed to an out-of-court settlement of $15.5 million to the victims' families. However, the company denied any liability for the deaths, stating that the payment was part of a reconciliation process and to cover the legal cost of the case and also in recognition of the events that took place in the region. Doesn't end there. Siwa's widow tries suing the Dutch court last year, but the Dutch judges decided that the evidence was not sufficient or verifiable enough to establish the responsibility or involvement of Shell or its Nigerian subsidiary, SPDC, and therefore the energy firm 
could not be held liable. And Finley Brook goes around saying that Shell is doing political assassinations. The last thing I'll say is where I really came in was issues of physical violence, territorial violence. And then when we started dissecting what we were seeing, particularly when you start getting into fossil fuels, there's so much deception. There's the, the slow violence, the insidious nature of um, power and how people's rights are being taken away. And it isn't always that they've got a gun to the side of their heads. There, There is that piece as well. Hold up. Wait a minute, something ain't right. They've got a gun to the side of their heads. There, There is that piece as well. How is that not an Alex Jones Sandy Hook level conspiracy theory? This is a professor who cheers when protesters storm the stage when Amy Klobuchar is speaking. I gotta call the staff about Burma. <laughs> If you are had a guest speaker she didn't like or thought wasn't great enough, would she rush the stage? Would she grab the mic? like that DEI dean at Stanford and embarrass the school? Would this be to the shame of University of Richmond in newspapers all across America? I'm just asking questions, but I think you know my thoughts. But let's dive into her beliefs. Now, believe it or not, before COVID layoffs, I was an environmental educator. I know how to go down to a body of water and measure for phosphates, turbidity, nitrates, all that good stuff. I have reusable shopping bags, and I even have ones for my produce. I try my best to have a plastic-free life because I don't want to ingest any kind of microplastic because I think it ravages the human body. Now, there are so many aspects of my life that are green and crunchy, but under the all-knowing eye of Finley Brook, she would find a problem with them. I'm not militantly green enough. And my question is, and something we'll never know, is what does Finley Brook's life look like? Does she have a composting toilet? Does she bike to work? What's her carbon footprint? She preaches it, but I always want to know if she lives it. Now, I support a local farm and own shares in that farm and weekly pick up my products for my farm shares. Now, I get raw milk and eggs. This is a restorative farm. The animals have free range. And despite being restorative in the eyes of me and many others, the 2030 carbon-free people, Green New Deal people, hate dairy farms. We've seen how surplus milk is forced to be dumped out in Canada. So, right now we're over our quota. Um, it's regulated by the government and by the DFO. But the problem is, is what they don't understand is millions of people look at this milk running away. And it's the end of the month. I have to dump, I dump 30,000 liters of milk and it breaks my heart. I will show you. By the way, this year, Canadian milk it's $7 a liter. When I go for my haircut, people say, wow, $7, Jerry, for a little bit of milk. I say, well, you have to go higher up 
because we have no say anymore as a dairy farmer on our own farm. And how the Dutch farmers were facing unrealistic nitrogen restrictions and bans on livestock farming in the Netherlands. Well, the Dutch revolted. And in March of this year, the Farmers' Party took over the Senate. The Dutch government and the EU were more than happy to destroy the livelihoods of all these farmers and at the same time destroy 10% of the Dutch economy just to meet, you know, the metrics that these people have largely invented. Now, Finley Brook hasn't said anything specifically about the Dutch, but her thoughts on hog farms here in Virginia and North Carolina tell me everything I need to know. Okay, I'm going to go to hog farms. So this is Dominion Energy's big push right now. They greenwash this so much. If you know anything about hog farms, first of all, I know you're looking at climate change. So confined animal agriculture drives climate change. Now, her style of thinking falls into what I would call environmental Malthusianism. So humans drive climate change, and as a result, we all need to live in a carbon neutral world, and that means we all as humans need to have a footprint that's zero, which is almost impossible for us to achieve. And since so many of us can't do it, you know, we should be sued into oblivion. And increasingly, I think companies are going to be able to be sued for their um, their net zero claims that are obviously not factual. Uh, their claims about carbon neutrality. There's going to be more and more lawsuits that are coming out that really force people to be more honest about these. The, you know, and it's happening here and there, um, but it, it really is going to be more comprehensive. I think once we get more momentum in these lawsuits. I want you to listen to the co-author of her book describe New York City's new policy of putting an energy rating on each building. But one thing that's really interesting about New York City is you know, you're walking around and now in each building, you have to put up your rating, your energy efficiency rating per building. So it's really fascinating to walk through New York City now and look at buildings and just look at their scorecard. It's very easy to understand. It's an ABCD system. And you know on your block which buildings are really bad and which ones are okay. Mm -hmm. And you know, just that sort of simple, um, it's a very simple thing to, to just put up a eight and a half by 10 or 11 piece of paper that states, you know, here's my rating for the building makes a big, huge difference. It's this moment of transparency where everybody can start to say like, oh, we got problems here that we need to address, that we can see them again, this visualization process. So what happens if you live in a building with a bad grade? Do you get protested? Does the landlord feel pressured to up the rent? and displace people as a result, effectively gentrifying the neighborhood to meet the environmental standards of the academic class. They talk about environmental justice all the time and how methane leaks and gas stoves are in the homes of the poorest amongst us. But when push comes to shove, are there measures really harming people? But I wanna show you what I consider to be most troubling about the Malthusian mindset. You know, they're almost Luddites. So listen to Finley Brook here. So we know we have a problem in Virginia. And there's been recent legislation, this has been in front of the General Assembly, where Dominion is proposing that they would transition to a whole fleet of electric school buses, which on one level seems like a really fantastic idea until you remember that they're going to be plugged in in our grid, which is still very much fossil fuel driven, gas being the biggest piece. We still do have coal on there. We have nuclear on there, which has its costs and negatives. But 
but we have other, and it's not carbon neutral. We have to be clear about that. Nuclear is problematic. Electric cars on the grid are problematic. They almost have a certain kind of traditionalism to wind and solar. We need to, to reinforce the idea that it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> we, we need to stop digging holes and we need to start using solar and wind. You know, I'm reminded of William F. Buckley and National Review's motto of standing at the wart history, yelling stop. And this is exactly what they do. They don't want to see any new innovation. So listen to Finley Brook here describe how she feels about up and coming innovations. Of course, we want to find solutions and hydrogen sounds so great. Like if you think about it, everything, if you know nothing, hydrogen sounds like the perfect green solution. Um, about 95% of the hydrogen that's being produced now it, it, or is in planning is with fossil fuels, most being gas. And so it is not the solution that people are thinking. And in fact, uh, it would require a whole lot of new infrastructure because if you try to mix in you know, the numbers they're still doing research on, but certainly more than 20%, you would need to have new appliances and you would need to have new pipelines. And so it's billions of dollars, again, that continued lock-in and we don't have it at scale. Like we're, all of the, that, that's the problem with carbon capture and storage as well. It's a great idea in theory, right? It doesn't actually work and it's incredibly expensive and it's this idea of delay. It's a fantasy, but it's a very dangerous fantasy. So all the new innovations aren't to scale. So we shouldn't pursue them. We shouldn't try to innovate. Blue hydrogen, green hydrogen, you know, they could solve all the problems, but it would just be wasted money because it's not to scale. So even though we use a petrodollar currently and if oil is gone, I guess our money is no longer backed and meaningless. And I guess I just didn't live through two years where 80% of all money in circulation was printed. And, you know, it's all kind of fake, but hey, let's listen to her and not the economics or engineering experts. So even though she's a penny pincher when it comes to innovation, she's more than happy to spend even more money to make all these new cities for the hypothetical climate refugees. So we're going to have to build new cities and build new localities, as you were talking about urban and rural. Um, but we're also going to have to address the costs of our inattention to climate this whole time. And we're not going to have the new materials that everybody thinks. So when I do sustainable design, I say recycled materials. What can you reuse? Can you build into the earth? How can you use vertical space? How can you bring in um, technologies that we've really been ignoring whether it is geothermal or like how can we really do things differently because we are going to have massive migration you would imagine this would cost so much more than improving or innovating but what i really want to point out is that when finley brook talks about new cities she's really talking about a 15 minute city this is pitched as an idyllic neighborhood where everything one needs whether it's work food housing cultural activities, education is with an easy reach, but it is really an excuse for complete surveillance of your life and techno-feudal serfdom to achieve carbon zero. I'm going to share with you the C40 Cities report with their goals. And so C40 Cities is a collective of cities that are going to be 15-minute cities. And so you can read the report. It's been out for years now. And so the report itself is called the future of urban consumption in a 1.5 C world, C40 cities, the headline report. And it has some metrics like this. So by 2030, you can get three new clothing items a year. 
Why? Because, you know, textile mills are poisoning the world. In 2030, you can have zero kilograms of meat consumption. You can have also zero kilograms of dairy consumption. And that's for the entire year. How many private vehicles will there be? Zero. This is the world they want. They want you to live like a peasant so they can meet their metrics. Pushing these policies is evil. So it may just sound like wanting to strictly regulate the hog farms, but the hog farms would fail any regulation until they could be sued out of business or just made plain illegal. We already saw the goal is zero meat consumption. So it may sound like building the city of tomorrow, but it's really the establishment of the climate carbon surveillance state. When I extrapolate these ideas out, I'm horrified. Even when I see a fraction of these policies put into effect in the real time, like in the Netherlands, people's lives are being destroyed. And the scariest thing to me is the people that push this, they're also the ones saying you're wasting your time pursuing blue hydrogen. And that nuclear, which arguably is the cleanest thing we have right now, to scale, is bad. But a future that they want, you would have the entire Mojave Desert. Lifeless. But it would be one giant solar panel. And, and hey, do we even need bats? Because they'd probably be extinct to have wind turbines to scale. And hey, I guess malaria will be the next big thing when all the bats are dead. Here along the rolling green hills outside of Livermore, wind farms are a clean source of energy, but scientists say those large blades are killing an alarming number of bats. That's the world they want. She literally wants you to live in a cave. Can you build into the earth? I mean, I do think I would be a very good caveman, but I really don't want to live in that future. Now, something I do want to point out is that New York City is starting an initiative right now where the public schools and the public hospitals are going to have vegan-only options, whether that's every day or just a few times a week, like in the schools. And this is an effort to lower their carbon footprint in regards to food by 30%. So we're seeing these things going into effect. And you can see where Mayor Adams is inspired by the C40 Cities Initiative. You can see it on the NCGov website. So this is very much a real thing, and we're going to be seeing more and more of it. One in every five metric tons of carbon dioxide our city emits comes from food. But all food is not created equal. The vast majority of food uh, that is contributing to our emission crisis lies in meat and dairy products. We already know that a plant, plant power diet is better for your physical and mental health. And I am living proof of that. But the reality is that thanks to this new inventory, we're finding out it is better for the planet. They offer only the strictest regulation, the abolition of things like meat, dairy, and personal vehicles. And all they want from you is your undying loyalty to their views on climate change. And we still live in a world where science is not definitive fact. They will deny you of your entire humanity to be able to control you. That is the end goal. And I understand not putting all of our faith in technological progressivism. I'm not a dummy. 
but they don't even want to allow people to try to innovate and to at least do something. It has to fit their definitions, their timeframes, and their desire to completely lord over you. They stand in the way of innovation, which is one of the most disgusting things you can do. But I think I made a pretty good case today as to why Dr. Mary Finley, banality of evil Brooke, is pushing the most dystopian future out there and how she loves to hide behind all the worst NGOs and is very overly reliant on our favorite word around here. That's problematic!